Brethren, if you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 6. If you want to follow along in the chair Bible, it's on page 914. And this morning we're just looking at verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 6. And before we read the word of the Lord, let us seek our Father in prayer and ask Him to give us understanding. Let's pray. Lord our God, You are a speaking God, and You've been pleased to record Your Word for Your people. And Lord, we know that that Word is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray for our own heart's reception, that Your Word would pierce us and Your Word would change us, that Your Word would show us Your greatness, Your purposes. And Father, we pray that we would receive it gladly and be changed by it. Grant Your grace to us, O Father, that we would profit through the proclamation of Your truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Acts 6, verses 1-7. to Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and and Nancor, and Timon, and Parmeus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, this is God's word, brethren, and may he bless it to us. You may be seated. Over the past several chapters, as we've studied the book of Acts, the church of Christ has multiplied with miracles drawing crowds and the ministry of the word touching souls. And yet Satan has started a vigorous onslaught against the saints. You remember he started with outside trouble, we could say. The Sadducees and then the Sanhedrin stirred up against Peter and John particularly. They couldn't discount the wonder of the lame man being healed, but they sought to silence the apostles concerning the preaching of Christ. Now, one night in a prison and their intimidation tactics didn't stop Peter and John, but Satan wasn't done. Next, he filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, members of the very body of Christ, to deceive the apostles and to seek a godly reputation at a discount. The Spirit of God revealed this inner twistedness. 
So while Satan attacked by means of traitors in the midst, his masquerade was swiftly exposed and the liars were liquidated. God struck them dead. Satan's failed twice, but he comes again with external pressure. The second half of Acts 5, this time with greater force. All the apostles are arrested. And while an angel set them free for a bit, the Sanhedrin, filled with rage and threats against them, continued. They told them to stop preaching in Jesus' name and to give oomph to their command. They beat all of them. 39 lashes minus one. That would be enough to provoke many people to change their mind about preaching. But the disciples have this command from Christ and they will not stop. They rejoice to suffer for the name of Christ. And then the church continues to grow. So you have to consider the larger scene here. Satan has failed with an external assault. He's failed with an internal assault. The third time wasn't the charm when he was failed again with an external assault. And we wonder, is he going to get the message? Is he going to quit? Is he going to stop? Is he going to see he's beaten? Well, no, he won't. For he acts again here within the church. And this time, it's not bold face lies, but a legitimate complaint that could tear apart the unity of God's people. As you just look at the scene from Acts 3 to Acts 6, brethren, you have to see the application that's obvious. The devil will always be busy to attack the people of God. Twice externally, twice internally, and this is just how he works. You must be aware of his schemes. And yet as the devil provokes division here, once more the apostles find divine direction. In their distress, the Lord will overturn the tactic of the devil. Well, let's see how he does that. We're going to note three things as we study the passage. First, we begin with Satan strikes back. Now, we've seen a truly remarkable thing in Acts chapter 4. We saw how a people from different classes, rich and poor, with different insights, some have been long followers of Christ, others are new converts, and a church, a people with different cultures and languages, Jerusalem Jews and Jews from the larger Roman Empire called the Hellenists, how these various groups have been brought together and maintained unity. It's surely a gift from above that the church, constantly increasing, is still holding together. And don't miss the divine blessing that the disciples were increasing. The devil's trying to dominate them, persecutions intensifying, and yet converts are still exploding. Yet the growing church often has what we call growing pains. You see, the new people need appropriate number of leaders. They need appropriate pastoral care. And here we see as the church is multiplying, new problems come. It had been the pattern of God's people in the body to bring gifts for the needs of the whole to the feet of the apostles and lay them there. And then the apostles would distribute those gifts according to their judgment. Here, however, we're told, while not being told all the details about distribution, that somehow some were being neglected. And we have to read between the lines a bit, but we can presume a little as to how this was working. They probably have been divided among various house churches along linguistic lines. Jerusalem Jews speak Aramaic. 
Hellenist Jews would have spoken Greek. And they need to be spoken to in their native tongue. So they're separated, and that even affects the distribution. So we read verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now this is the first hint of any type of fractured relationship among God's people. And the problem is really simple. The Jews from outside of Jerusalem, who spoke Aramaic, who didn't have long-standing connections to Jerusalem, their widows were being overlooked. When the food was distributed, the apostles were passing over these outsiders. And there's absolutely no indication here that this was intentional. It was simply an oversight. Do you recognize that oversights happen in the church? Do you recognize it happened to the apostles? Oversights happen. But that oversight led to a complaint. And the complaint is framed as us and them, which is concerning. The complaint of the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now imagine you're a poor Hellenist widow You've attached yourself to the church, and though you've struggled to scrape by before, now you're getting no food at all. You can't go back to the synagogue because they're not going to help you. And the people of Christ claim to be a people of love, to be a people who care for one another, but you're being neglected. And then you discover it's not just happening to you, it's happening to those like you, those separated from the in crowd in Jerusalem. The outsiders are being neglected. And as you would expect, what happens? Grumbling begins. Now, you can't tell this from the ESV's translation, but the word rendered complaint in verse 1 is the root word associated with the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness. And that word immediately signals the seriousness of the situation. What happened soon after the exodus from Egypt as the people of God begin to struggle, they don't have water when they want it, they don't have the food they want, what happens? Well, they start grumbling, and their grumbling was contagious. Satan stirred them up to vociferously voice their discontent. They are passionate about expressing their displeasure and their distrust of the leadership. And it led to disaster after disaster after disaster. Ultimately, the grumbling exploded into unbelief and a whole generation falls in the wilderness who are far from God. They will never enter His rest. That, brethren, is the danger here. Satan is aiming to pour gasoline on the flames of dissatisfaction. And he wants the people to focus on what they aren't getting and throw off their leadership. Now, when people bring complaints against the leaders, it is often the case, sad to say, that the leaders respond poorly. Two striking examples of this can be seen in Scripture that I'll mention. The first, we can think of Moses, though it was quite some time before he really responded poorly. But maybe you remember Numbers chapter 20. He had lived with God's people a long time in their complaints, probably by this point about 38, 39 years. 
and they are again in need of water, grumbling against him. The word tells him what to do, to speak to the rock. But what does he do? He strikes it. Now, the symbolism of that rock is of Christ being struck once and living water flowing perpetually. That's echoed even the Zechariah text we read this morning. Living water coming from the Lord. So it's imperative that he not do that, that he not strike. This, this symbolism matters. But Moses was filled with rage against the people and he assembles them all and he says, Here now, you rebels. We're not off to a good start. And then he strikes the rock, not just once, but twice. It's an action of unbelieving anger that brings swift discipline from the Lord. He didn't regard the Lord as holy before the people. And now he won't enter the land of Canaan. Now you understand Moses' sin doesn't mean he's an unbeliever, but it does mean he was captured by a surprisal of sin in this moment, and it causes trouble. Satan provokes Moses to give the complainers a piece of his mind. That can happen to us. Or we can think about Rehoboam, 1 Kings 12. This is even more striking. Moses, uh, excuse me, Solomon had been told the kingdom will be torn away from him during his son. So a group of complainers come to Rehoboam to tell him of all the complaints they have about the way his daddy ran the show. He decides not to listen to the council of the elders. He talks to his hot-headed friends and he blows up on the people. If my father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. If you think you had it bad then, you wait till you see how my leadership is going to be. It was an ugly moment of pride and pretentiousness. And what happened? The kingdom was torn apart. The failure to handle a complaint, whether legitimate or illegitimate, brought destruction, disunity, and a win for the devil. And that is exactly what Satan is after here. Now friends, when we read this, and we are aware of Satan's schemes, we need to recognize that the devil from the garden to our graves is out to generate disunity among the people of God. Disunity in your marriages. He hates the fact that you have a union that is not to be broken and he attacks it. Disunity in your families. Disunity amongst the leadership of the church. Disunity in the fellowship. Satan wants to take legitimate concerns and turn them into burn-down-the-house issues. He wants to take minor offenses and make them a source of lasting, major disputes. This is how he works. And it's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, when calling on us to walk worthily of the calling with which we have been called in Christ, a call into union with Jesus, unity. He says we must walk, get this language, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another assumes there will be sin in the body. It assumes we will have to cover over transgressions against one another. If you need patience, it assumes... Things are going to happen in the church, intentional or unintentional, that are hurtful. But you don't assume the worst and go off on a rampage. Rather, 
As Paul goes on to say, Ephesians 4, verse 3, be eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity has to be maintained. Christ purchased it and established it, but it has to be maintained. How hard is it to maintain unity in your marriage? Well, if you're honest, you, you'd recognize it's incredibly difficult. Well, now blow that up on a scale of a whole church. How hard is it? It is incredibly difficult. Unity requires work. In a sinful world, what is ordered is always breaking down. In Satan, our own sin, this corrupt world, is going to pull all of us toward a philosophy called to thine own self be true. But we have to stand against Satan's schemes. Now, brethren, that doesn't mean we fail to raise legitimate issues. Of course, our default setting is 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, love one another deeply, for love covers a multitude. Note that word. Multitude. And the next phrase is not irritations. A multitude of sins. But when legitimate issues come, they need to be addressed. And this is a legitimate issue. There are widows without food. And notice how the apostles respond. They don't blast the complainers as a collection of malcontents, a bunch of troublemakers who ought to be silenced. No, they listen to the problem. I could pick on the men because I am one. Do you listen to the problem? Do you listen to your wife that you might understand? Do you listen to your children? They listen to the problem and then they take the matter seriously. They take action to ensure not simply a band-aid is applied to the situation, but that the church has resources to address this problem perpetually. You see, when leaders, when we learn from this situation, Satan strikes, when trouble comes, we learn that we must not return evil for evil. We don't complain about the complainers. We don't lash out and paint other people as the problem. Further, we don't blow people off. We don't plug up our ears and say, you're being ridiculous. Likewise, as husbands, fathers, parents generally, when those under our leadership raise a matter, whether the problem is real or imagined, I know I'm repeating myself. You need to listen. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. For the wrath of man never achieves the righteousness of God. And if it's a legitimate issue, then we need to do something. Now, of course, the question is always, well, what are we supposed to do? It depends on the issue. But notice that the apostles are not trying to figure it out as individualists. They're working together. Doesn't that imply the seeking of counsel when issues come? Brethren, there's so many times in the church where you, you need to seek counsel. Are you doing it? Well, the apostles consult together. It's their job to protect the weak. And they're going to do it. So, they look upon these lesser-known widows, probably newly added from the outside, and they recognize this is a big deal. For what would it say about the church, the school of Christ, the school of compassion, if we don't even take care of our poor needy people? It would be a black eye on the church. And secondly, see with me, the Spirit's solution. The apostles, verse 2, they call an assembly. 
Notice what they do first. They declare it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. To diakoneo. I know you don't know Greek, but do you hear that word? It's not right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to deacon. That's what they're saying. In other words, the daily distribution to the widows is a vital part of the care of the church, but it's not something that we can neglect our responsibility in order to do. Preaching has to be maintained. Preaching can't slip. Preaching is not something that can be put on a bottom shelf. It's not right, they say. Not right to whom? It's not right to Christ, the King and Head of the church. Christ called the apostles to preach. He called them to bear witness to the name of Jesus, to proclaim repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, to herald the Gospel. And that cannot stop. How is the church growing? Through the preaching of the Word. And oh, how Satan would love to have the church supplement the one thing needful, as Jesus puts it to Martha, to do other good things. Do you see how the devil is always trying to distract the church from the issue? We're threatening you, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. We're going to imprison you, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. We're going to beat you, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. Now, I'm going to tempt you not to preach in Jesus' name by handling other problems. But beloved, do you see the priority being given to the preaching of the Word? God's primary instrument in the salvation and sanctification of His people is the preaching of the Word. Now, of course, the apostles are not saying, as long as the Word of Christ is preached, it doesn't matter if the widows among us starve. No, what they're saying is one legitimate ministry caring for the needy can't make another legitimate ministry stop. Ever. Because this is the way God's people are going to grow through the preaching of the Word. Now, we've stressed this point repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. But Luke stresses it multiple times, so I I feel like I have to stress it again to you as well. The Word must be proclaimed for us to grow. And brethren, this principle, the priority of preaching, has implications for us today. Yes, we no longer have apostles. But Paul will pass on to the next generation, to Timothy, a dying command. Do you remember what it was? Preach the Word. That is the last thing Paul is telling Timothy to do. This is the most important thing that you do, Timothy. Preach the Word. This is the chief priority. Preaching cannot falter. Fellowship, mercy ministry, various connectional attempts in the church which are needed can never supplant preaching. And in a day, brethren, where people want less preaching and more programs, you cannot miss what's being said here. Preaching is a first-order principle. Do you believe it? It's easy for me to say I'm the preacher. Do you believe it? Do you show that you believe it by showing up when preaching happens? By showing up as much as you can when preaching happens. That would be twice on the Lord's Day. Because you need it. You don't need less of the Word. You need more of the Word. Peter will say, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're to crave 
the pure spiritual milk. He's talking about the word that by it we may grow up in salvation. I don't have time to preach that text to you this morning, but go read it. He's talking about preaching, not just your quiet time. The preach word, do you crave it like a newborn baby craves milk? Did you wake up this morning and think to yourself, today is the day when Christ speaks to my soul and I want it. But then do we also recognize that preaching isn't everything in the life of the church? A church that preaches the gospel and then neglects its own is a church, James would say, that has no true religion. Faith without works is dead. So we have to care for these people. The solution the Spirit raises here is that the apostles first, on the one hand, must keep preaching. They can't put it on the back burner. But then they must establish an office, an official means of caring for the needy in the church. And we should see as we watch this how the Lord is thwarting the devil. Satan is aiming to bring disunity, to get the church fighting amongst themselves, and to stop preaching. God overturns the problem to make the church even stronger. How do we see it? Well, a whole new office is formed for perpetual church leadership to care for the people of God. Verse 3, the apostles tell the people, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. I wish I didn't have to talk about this, but I do. The initial qualification is male leadership. And Luke does not word the generic, he doesn't use the generic word for mankind. He uses the very specific word for males in particular. And then he clarifies that it must be males among you. The men who are around, who show up. You don't nominate someone to be a deacon because you want them to get involved more in the life of the church. No, the men who are here, the men among you, the men you see, the men intimately involved in church, in devotion to the Word, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, literally of those being attested. They're certified by their reputation as models of godliness. They're respectable men, men of dignity, men with Godly households, men who are solid husbands, they pursue the things of Christ. They evidence a heart of service, which is the calling here. Now, some guys say, well, these men aren't deacons because the word deacon isn't used. They just miss the context. The daily distribution in the text is called the diaconia, the word related to deacon or service. The job to serve tables, is diakoneo. <clears throat> Deaconing is all over the passage. And I just made that a verb, by the way. Do you know how to deacon? You need men who have the humility and sacrificial service in their lives to do this task. Pick out seven men who are well attested. And verse 3, who are also full of the Spirit and of wisdom. <clears throat> That's another moral qualification. They're to be spiritual men. How do we recognize if a man is filled with the Spirit? He will evidence the fruit of the Spirit. How do we evidence or how do we see that he has maturity and wisdom, full of the Spirit and of wisdom? James 3 talks about wisdom from above, a wisdom from the Spirit that is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. 
If a man is to care for the needy in the church, if he's to handle the church's funds to minister to the hurting, he's going to need wisdom and gentleness and abounding mercy. Now, beloved, these qualities should be found in all of us because they simply tell us what Christ's likeness is. But these qualities must be in the deacons. It is a high calling. In deacons, the text calls us to self-examination. You have to ask, is that me? Is this my heart full of the Spirit and of wisdom? It also directs the church to her future leadership. Are we looking for godly men to lead? Robert Murray McShane, famous 19th century Scottish preacher, once said, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. I want to say that again. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. When you go read of your officers in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's pretty much all about their character. Are we like Christ? Well, the apostles say they'll take these seven godly men and end of verse 3, appoint to, or better, put them in charge of this duty. The deacons are given the authority in this sphere to operate. But it's an authoritative office. It's service, but it's authoritative. They have authority over the temporal or physical affairs of the church. And as the office is established, we could say that the deacons are established to remove anything that hinders the apostles from fulfilling their primary calling. For note, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. You see how the Spirit of God is establishing a division of labor in the church? The deacons will handle what we could call the secular business of the church, caring for the needy, managing finances, by extension, taking care of church property in the future. And the apostles and those to come after them, the elders, will be devoted to prayer and the service of the Word. It's interesting that Luke calls it the service of the Word, the ministry, the diaconia of the Word. We both serve. You can say it this way, the elders are Christ's servants who can passionately minister to the souls of God's people. And the deacons are Christ's servants who can passionately minister to the physical and monetary needs of God's people. The deacons assist the elders in the overall care of the saints. And they take away the distractions from soul care so that the elders can do their job to build up the saints. But let me let us elders not escape the text either. What is the job of the elder? The apostles are first elders, right? And elders come after them. What, are, what is their job? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. We said a lot about the ministry of the Word. What about prayer? Elders, do we pray? It's no accident that this is the thing that said first. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Do you see, brothers, prayer as foundational to your calling? 
Not just do you pray at prayer meeting, not just do you pray in the service, are you characterized by prayer? That's our task. I could say it differently and much more strong, pointedly, and I think I will. This is your job. And you don't get to make the rules of what it is. Christ gives it to you. Prayer. Can we say, as Samuel once said to Israel, Far be it from me that I could that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Elders, we're nothing if we're not men of prayer. Indeed, may we see that our labors in the Word will never be sufficient without prayer. Fellow elders, I'm talking to myself. We're not sufficient in this calling. We're men of weakness. We're jars of clay. Who can claim to give Christ things to Christ's people for their spiritual growth. Who can interpret skillfully and apply meaningfully and consistently communicate the will of God and model it with precision and power? You can't even understand the Word of God without the Spirit of God enabling you. So we're in need of prayer for the work. And then we need to pray the truth into the people. Pray that God would keep our own hearts stirred up with affection for Him, enabling us to study, to teach, and to do His Word. Are we praying like this? Elders, this is our calling. And if you don't feel like you want to get under the floor when you see it, I don't think you understand the awesomeness of the weight of this calling. You know, in my... 20 years of pastoral ministry, the thing that I'm convicted about the most is simply not praying to the depth that I want to for God's people. But may the Lord help us to pray. Well, seven men are chosen for this office. Two well-known characters appear first, Stephen and Philip. Evidently, Stephen's the most gifted because we're told that he specifically is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? Among those gifted for office, we should recognize that some are superiorly gifted and then some are lesser known. doesn't mean one has more authority than the other. It simply means even among the officers, there's a diversity of gift. We have two well-known guys, Philip and Stephen. We're going to hear more about them. And then we have five guys we never hear anything about Again, and it's interesting that each of these seven guys have Greek names, which means this, as the Hellenists complained, the Greek speaking, the church chose only Greek speaking Jews to minister to their widows, all of the widows, even the Jerusalem Jews. This is a signal of great unity. And then they're set apart for the office with a laying on of hands and prayer. You see, again, what Satan aimed to achieve to cause the church to bicker has totally failed, and now the church is stronger. And the only analogy I could really think up here with picking seven Hellenist Jews to minister to the whole body would be something like this. It would be like having a country church in the South where Yankees, Northerners, are still viewed with suspicion. And the Yankees still feel like they're outsiders. But to ensure everyone that we all know God is at work in those Yankees will only choose the Yankees to minister to all of us. That's striking. The Spirit of God is taking the teeth out of the devil's tactic 
and thoroughly thwarting him. And what happens here as the church is under this external pressure or internal pressure, follows the Spirit's leading? What's the result? Finally, and very, very briefly, the spread of the word. Look at verse 7. It's just a brief closing comment, but look at what happens. And the word of God continued to increase. We began our section saying the disciples were increasing in number. Then the problem arose and it could have shut down the growth. The cultural differences between the various Jews could have led to splintering factions and contentious bickering, which would have made the church look like a group you did not want to join. Who wants to join a bunch of people who are arguing with each other? Who wants to be associated with people who say, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and they don't even act like Jesus cares for the people. Furthermore, if they had been concerned for one another but abandoned the main thing, preaching, then the church would have not continued to grow. Where are the churches in our culture who years ago promoted love over sound doctrine, who devalued the preaching of the resurrected Christ and His calls to repent for moral lessons on things like being a good neighbor. I'll tell you where those churches are. They are museums. They're cultural art centers. They're restaurants. Or they are a pathetic looking thing with a massive building and like 30 people. The reason that didn't happen here is because they didn't stop preaching while they took care of the need. So the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And then you see converts increase, specifically a great many priests became obedient to the faith. It's another little thwarting of Satan. While some of the religious leadership in Jerusalem are doing everything they can to shut down the gospel, other leaders in Jerusalem are now joining the people of God. Remember what Gamaliel had said in the last episode? If this thing is of God, you're not going to stop it. You might even find that you're opposing God. Well, what's happening? They're growing. It's not stopping. And these men devoted themselves to Christ. They became obedient to the faith. What does that mean as we wrap up? It means they gave their, the totality of their submission to Christ and what Christ requires. This is what the church should be. A church that never devalues the preaching of the Word. A church that take cares of one another, take, takes care of one another. A church that has godly leaders and a church that commits themselves to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Brethren, may this characterize us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there are so many things You have to teach us in this text. And Lord, we pray that we would learn the lesson. We pray that we would take to heart the seriousness of Your Word and the standard for caring for the needs of Your people. Lord, we also pray that You would guard us against rampant disunity, for the evil one would love to fan into flame any small irritation, any legitimate complaint. Lord, protect us from that. Guard us against the wiles of the evil one and give us increasing devotion 
to Christ, the lover of our soul. For we pray it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.